You know, the book of James is a favorite of most Bible students, and it's been called the book of practical Christianity by some, and it's really, you might even call it a short course into practical Christianity, because you can read it in just a few minutes, and there's so much insight and wisdom uh, that can be gleaned from just so few chapters in such a small book. Uh, each year when I read through uh, the Bible and I come to the book of James, I think about uh, perhaps the book differently each time. And you know that as a Bible student, you can read a passage of scripture or a chapter in a book and uh, just different insights come. They were they were there all along, but maybe it's the case that an area of focus have been has been such in your life that you noticed something this time through it that maybe you hadn't noticed before. And uh, that has been my experience recently in reading through the book of James. I have been impressed by the repeated references to the idea of stumbling or falling. Uh, that are apparent in the book of James. And the warnings and the admonitions that are there relative to that concern. And so this morning, I would like to notice what we will call trip and fall hazards uh, from the book of James. And uh, we'll just kind of step our way through the book and notice these and talk about them uh, and draw, hopefully, the lessons that are pertinent for us today relative to these warnings of hazards uh, that exist in this book. Practically speaking, we face a lot of fall or trip hazards in life, and James highlights some of those for us. And so here's the first one. We are likely to fall into trials, James says. The word fall there in the original, if you take the English word, you raise the hood and you look at the Greek underneath it, is a word that means to encounter at hazard. You've encountered something, but in a hazardous way. And it means to fall in with or to fall into. Uh, you might fall into a shallow pit uh, and it might not be that big a deal, but if you fall in there and it's full of snakes, then there's a hazard there that you have fallen into or you've fallen in with. It's the same word that you see in Luke chapter 10 and verse 30 uh, relative to the parable of the Good Samaritan where the Bible says a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among Thieves. It's not so much talking about the act of falling. What it's talking about is this man went away and experienced something where he encountered a hazard. And of course, the hazard was the robbers uh, that uh, stripped him, wounded him, and left him uh, there for dead. James says that we... Chapter 1 and verse 2, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. So James points out that this 
hazardous situation in which we will find ourselves can manifest in various ways. There are various trials, multicolored or varied situations and circumstances that pose a hazard or risk for us. And so we have before us this morning this depiction of a staircase. And, you know, staircases can be very hazardous. Maybe falling up them, not so much, but there, there's always the risk and the concern of the hazard of tripping and falling down this staircase. So we're going to work our way down the staircase with these various trip or fall hazards. And this first one is trials. Um, A trial is an experience in our life that maybe we didn't want, but it's something difficult. It's something that we must face, we must endure, we must go through. And the way that we endure that thing might be a difference maker for our faith. For instance, maybe you lose your job, and maybe you are a family that is uh, has a single source of of income, and now you're you have lost that income. You're facing this trial, and maybe you've not thought about it this way. Maybe you have, but there are trip and fall hazards relative to that trial, because the way that you deal with it and the way that you approach it might disrupt your faith. It might cause you problems that interfere with your relationship uh, with God. The the fall tends to be less impactful when we are prepared for it, though. For instance, if you have built up an emergency fund and maybe you are in a situation where you have three to six months of Earnings set aside in case you face a trial like this. Because of your preparation, it will likely impact you less, in a way lesser than it would if you were not prepared at all. And so James gives us this warning right out of the gate about the various or manifold or varying different trials that we might find ourselves in. We have this warning so that we might be prepared uh, for it. If you look at verses 2 through 4 here, he adds to it. Brethren, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So even in these trials, even in these situations that pose a risk of tripping and falling for us, James says there's a benefit in it. If you are prepared for it, if you know that things are going to happen in life and you are prepared to face them and deal with them, then there's a benefit. The strengthening of your patience, your perseverance, your ability to deal with whatever comes your way. But if you're not prepared, if you don't go through life expecting that you're going to face these hazards, then the alternative is true. It's likely going to be detrimental to you in some way. 
And so preparation here is to understand and appreciate that we know trials are there. And if we know and we're prepared, then we're likely to face them in a way that will be to our benefit rather than to our demise. So the first trip and fall hazard that James points out is this idea of trials. Now, the second one is found in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, and it has to do with wealth. We are prone to a humiliating stumble regarding wealth, James wants us to know. Now, before we run in our minds to what we think James is saying, that money is evil and only people who have a lot of money have to be concerned about this trip or fall hazard, that's not what he's saying at all. Contextually speaking, he's talking about a reversal of fortunes. Not just the person who has fortunes, but the reversal of fortunes. Now read the verses with me and notice this. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as the flower of the field, he will pass away. Here is a dual situation. There is a humbled person who experiences an exaltation, and there is an exalted person who experiences a humiliation. So it's not about whether a person is poor, whether a person is rich. It is about this reversal of fortunes and how we deal with it, up or down, whatever the case may be uh, for us. And the point for us is if life, our life is tied to our economic state, then a drastic change could be detrimental to us spiritually. If I my faith is connected and my spirituality is connected to my station in life, whether rich or poor, and there's a change in that state, then it's going to affect me. If the poor person gets a lot of money all of a the sudden, then that's likely to affect their spiritual condition. If a rich person loses their fortune all of a sudden, that's likely to affect their spiritual condition. That's the trip and fall hazard here in James chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Wealth does not increase our spiritual vitality. It shouldn't. And the loss of it shouldn't diminish it. Our relationship with God and the degree of our spiritual fervor should be constant regardless of what our economic situation is. shouldn't fluctuate. It shouldn't change because it's not tied to material, material things. It should not fluctuate with finances, but it often does. You see people who experience, who, who have no concerns really, financial, materially, they're doing well, and then there's a reversal of fortune where they lose what they have, so often people look at God and say, why did you allow this to happen? What did I do wrong? Where did I fail you? Why has this happened to me? And they may quit God because of it. 
On the other side of the coin, you have a person who has nothing, and maybe they come into money, maybe by legitimate means, maybe through gambling or something in an illegitimate way, and they get these resources that they never had, and now all of a sudden, a dependence that they once felt on God changes. I don't need God anymore. I've got all the money I need to do whatever I want to with it. The point is, if that change in your condition or economic state affects your spirituality, then you or I have experienced a trip and fall hazard that James, James is cautioning us about. I think it's interesting that the Proverbs writer said in chapter 30, verses 7 through 9, these words, Two things I request of you. Deprive me not before I die. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. The Proverbs writer captured the very essence of what we're talking about in James here, this trip and fall hazard with respect to wealth. Don't make me poor. Don't make me rich because if I get too tied to that state or condition, it may affect my relationship with you. I may trip and fall. So give me the food allotted to me for a day. Isn't that what Jesus was getting at in Matthew chapter 6? Verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, that is, all the necessities that you have need of will be added to you. God will take care of us day by day. But if we try to live life differently than that, then we set ourselves up for a trip or a fall hazard. Here's the third one. Partiality. I think the font's kind of getting a little small there. Trust me, that's what it says. Partiality. And this one takes us to chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. And I want to take the time uh, to read this. Here's, here's the point relative to partiality that pertains to trip and fall hazards. When we get tangled in partiality, we face a hard fall. When we get tangled in partiality, we face a hard fall. Now, I hope you can follow along with me in James chapter 2. Notice the first 13 verses here. <clears throat> My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with a gold ring or with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place and say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges of evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who loved him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not rich, uh, do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do not they blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? 
If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So there, there's a lot there, and there are two components of this idea of partiality that I would like for us to notice because they represent trip and fall hazards relative to partiality. One of the most unfortunate inclinations that we have, brethren, is when we draw sinful distinctions among people. Now, that could be regard to race. It could be regard to ethnicity. It could be regard to culture. In regard to culture, it could be in regard to socioeconomic status. It could be a number of things that we notice about people and we draw a distinction that says good or bad, acceptable, unacceptable, based upon superficial things. And James is relating a situation in the early church where Christians were doing just that. People would come into their assembly and the status attributed to them was based upon superficial things. Things that could be here, quite frankly, today and gone tomorrow. We just talked about the change in economic status that James warned about. But here Christians are using those characteristics and those qualities to determine the worth and the value and the contribution of a person. That's a trip and fall hazard. And when we get caught up in that kind of thinking, then we're making sinful distinctions that God has not made and has not prescribed for us and we're likely to trip and fall. <clears throat> there was a situation recorded in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 11 where Paul spoke of having to confront Peter uh, in a si similar situation where before influential individuals had come, Peter was okay with eating with the Gentiles. But when these influencers came, Peter would withdraw himself because he was more concerned about the reputation. He was more concerned about what others thought of him based upon his association with people who were just like him in Christ Jesus. And Paul said, when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. Here, even Peter, an apostle, was subject to trip and fall hazards, and in particular here, this one with regard to partiality. And it was an ugly and a bitter fall for him. It was a hard fall. I said there are two parts to this, and we've noted the first part of it in the first part of this chapter. 
But notice in what we just read in chapter 2, verses 10, uh, verse 9 through 11 here. If you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. And then he gives these examples. Do you commit adultery? Or he who he said do not commit adultery has said do not murder. Now, if you do commit adultery, but you do, uh, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. And so sometimes, brothers and sisters, we face trip and fall hazards because of the way we deal with God's law. We show partiality in dealing with his law. And we'll draw lines and say, it's okay for me to do these things, but if I step over this line, then this, this is not okay. Or we'll look at people and say, you are out of harmony with your, in your relationship with God because you do these things, which the law specifically says don't do, but yet a closer examination of my own life would reveal I'm doing things that the law also says don't do. You could call it hypocrisy. Here, James calls it partiality. We're partial when it comes to how we deal with God's law. And we will expect things of people that we don't expect of ourselves. Or we'll extend grace and mercy to our own behavior, but we won't do the same thing for other people. And I'm not dismissing any sin to say, just because you sin, that makes it okay for this other person. It's not right for anybody to sin. But the trip and fall hazard for us is when we're partial in our assessment of behavior and we extend grace to ourselves that we're not willing to extend to others. We don't judge ourselves by the same standard we judge others by. And then in verse 13, again, I'll point out, he says, judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. Don't expect God to line up with you or with me in our impartial, uh, in our partial judgment when he expects us to apply the same law to our lives that we often so eagerly apply to the lives of others. And so the trial or the trip and fall hazard is this. We get tangled in partiality. And when we do, we face a hard fall. Here's the next one. Our mouths. We often trip and fall over our own mouths, James says. It's a trip and fall hazard. And we go to chapter 3. First, really, there are two parts to this. But the first one is in chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. And I'll just kind of summarize this for time's sake. <clears throat> but he says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that you will receive a stricter judgment. So be careful about assuming a position of leadership, teaching in this case, because you're opening your mouth and you're instructing and you're opening yourself up to strict criticism and judgment because of what you say. It may not be correct. It may be hypocritical, whatever the case may be. 
In verse 2 he says, we stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he's a perfect man. He's able also to bridle the whole body. So the gist of that is none of us are perfect. Therefore, we all stumble in word. We all run the risk of tripping and falling in the hazard of the way that we use our mouth. And he talks about uh, the power of the tongue relative to a, a bridle, how it's used to steer a horse or a rudder, how it's able to steer a ship or a small fire can kindle a great forest and burn and destroy it. And our tongues and our mouths are like that. You know, and there's the idea that, you know, our mouth moves faster than our brain, which is not true. It really doesn't. Our mouth is controlled by our brain, but the problem is it's often controlled by the emotional, impulsive, or habitual aspect of our brain. We'll open our mouths out of habit. We're so prone to just speaking off the cuff that it, it's a habit. It's just that's what we do. Or we let our emotions take control and lead us into saying things we'll later regret. Or we're impulsive. We don't exercise self-control, and so our impulses are driving. And the way that that is often manifested is from our mouths. Our mouths aren't autonomous. They don't operate on their own. They are controlled by the brain, but they are, in essence, a door to the echo chamber of our heart. The things that are reverberating in our heart find their way out through our mouths. And that's what Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And many a Christian has tripped and stumbled over the hazard of an uncontrolled mouth. There's a second part of this. It's found in chapter 5 and verse 12. Where James says, but above all, above all brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. And so here James brings up this idea of trip and fall hazards, but relative to the way we use our mouths in oaths or just affirmations. And we, you know, we... The Jews did it, and we did it. To come up with these convoluted formulas of affirmation that, that you know, are ambiguous, not very clear about what we're communicating. And James is telling us to avoid that. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Just say what you mean and be truthful and honest and not misrepresentative in what you say. Things like, I swear on a stack of Bibles. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Or on my mother's grave, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Or on your very own life, I've heard people say that and you have too, and maybe this is language that we have used. But James, is, James says that's trip or fall hazard. Just say yes or no. And don't come up with these convoluted formulas that you're going to trip and stumble over. This comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 36, or at least it's influenced 
by what Jesus said there. You don't swear on things in heaven or on the earth. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. And then we're reminded in Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 and 37, that every idle word men will speak, they'll give an account for in the day of judgment. For by your words, you'll be justified. And by your words, you'll be condemned. Do you think Jesus means that literally? Or is that just some kind of hyperbolic statement? That's just, he's just trying to exaggerate for effect. Or do you think he means that literally? Every idle word men speak, and women, not just men, they'll give an account in the day of judgment. There's nothing in the verse that suggests that it should be interpreted figuratively. And so we better be careful with our mouths and with our words because James says it's a trip hazard, trip and fall hazard. And many a man and woman, boys and girls, have stumbled over their words to their own detriment. We don't want that to be our situation or circumstance. There's one more. Unfaithful or our faithfulness. We run the risk of falling out of faithfulness to God. You see this in James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. I use this verse a lot to, from the perspective of the one who's doing the rescuing. Saving a soul from death. But have you ever stopped to read this verse to think about the condition of the person who's in need of rescue, being rescued. He's wandered from the truth. He needs help to be turned back. He's a sinner in the error of his way and his soul is destined for death. Now that's the condition of the person. James admonishes and encourages us to rescue. But this person who needs rescuing is a Christian. A letter written to Christians, and he says, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. So this is a Christian who has fallen from grace. They've stepped out of their relationship with God. They have tripped down the stairs, and they've fallen into unfaithfulness. And so if it happened to one, it could happen to any, and it could happen to all. And you and I run the same risk of falling out of faithfulness to God. There's no, the word trip is not here. The word stumble is not here. The word fall is not here. But what James says represents the gravest of all of them. How much more gravely could you fall than out of your relationship with God? To fall from here to here to spiritual death and the detriment of your soul eternally. What James speaks of one, here is one who was on the right road and decided to go on the other. And there are only two, Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, the narrow way and the broad way. The broad way has a lot of people on it, but it's the way that leads to destruction. And many Christians in varying degrees, even this morning, 
are falling out of their faithfulness to God. And we're admonished here, reminded that we run this risk. And so to be forewarned is to be forearmed. In this regard, to be reminded that we can fall. Many have, and likely many more will. But it shouldn't be us because we've taken the opportunity, hopefully, this morning to notice some trip and fall hazards from James, and he's helped us to be prepared. You know, the most vulnerable Christian in this life is the one who lives without attention to the hazards. You know, the most vulnerable soldier on a battlefield is the one who walks through a minefield without knowing the hazards that are before him. And so very similar for us. We live in a world full of hazards that put before us the risk every moment of tripping and falling. And we're vulnerable when we don't realize that and we don't prepare ourselves and arm ourselves against it. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, 165, and we'll close with this, great peace have those who love your law and nothing causes them to stumble. People who are in a right relationship with God and who are feeding on his word daily are better equipped to avoid the trip and fall hazards that James warns us about. The best way to negotiate the hazards is to be familiar with and to fill your heart with the Word of God and may help us to do just that. This morning, if you're not a Christian, you need to obey the gospel through faith, repentance, confession, and baptism for the remission of your sins. Maybe, maybe that doesn't ring with clarity for you, this plan of salvation that, that I've just laid before us. Maybe that's unfamiliar to you. Maybe you want to study more and come to know that God does have a plan to save your soul. Please know that we're ready and willing to help you. See it with your own eyes in God's book so that you can prepare yourself to meet him one day. Maybe you're a Christian here this morning, and maybe you're tripping and falling over everything that we talked about this morning. Maybe you've done it in a public way. And maybe you need to acknowledge it publicly and make it right because that's what God expects of us. Maybe it's private. Maybe it's something between you and God and you need to recognize your trips and falls and correct them with him. Might encourage you this morning to do whatever you need to do to make your relationship right with God. And if that involves us helping you directly and publicly this morning, please know that we love you and we're ready to do just that. We're going to sing a song to encourage, and if you have any need, we hope you'll come as we stand and sing. Thank you for listening to this recorded audio of a sermon that was preached at the Roanoke Church of Christ. If you'd like to visit us, you can do so at 608 Dallas Drive, Roanoke, Texas, 76262, or you can visit our website at roanokechurchofchrist.org. We hope to see you soon, and may God bless you.